Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, Conversations About Impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I show entrepreneurs how to turn their businesses into agents for lasting change, global impact, and a force for good in the world. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. I'm excited to announce the Fierce Women Forum, a special event where nine remarkable leaders and I will talk about what it means to be fierce, the reactions we receive as women and people perceived as women, and how we can support each other to be fierce when it's needed. If you've ever been told you're too much or silenced yourself because you were afraid of how you'd be perceived, the Fierce Women Forum is for you. To learn more about the forum and the outstanding leaders I'll be in conversation with, and to register, go to workalchemy.com forward slash FWF, as in Fierce Women Forum. The Fierce Women Forum begins on July 15th, so be sure to bookmark that site right now and go there right after this episode. Even if you're listening to this after July 15th, you can still register and receive the recording. Please join us. Today's guest on the podcast is Gail Golden. Gail is the founder and principal of Gail Golden Consulting, an international management psychology consulting firm. She utilizes her experience as an entrepreneur, business owner, and consultant to senior leaders of both Fortune 1000 and nonprofit organizations to help businesses navigate rapid change by accelerating the development of senior leaders and their organizations. Welcome to the podcast, Gail. I'm delighted to have you here. Well, I'm equally delighted to be here. Thank you so much for asking me. So I'm really intrigued by your, uh, the trajectory of your career. I mean, you started off with uh, being a clinical psychologist, and uh, then you did an MBA of all things, which is unusual, an unusual choice, I think, for most people. And then um, you're doing uh, the, work that, the consulting work that you're doing now, the leadership work. So how did, how did that all come about? I'm, why an MBA? Well, you are right. It's unusual. I think, at least at the time that I went through the MBA program, I was the only psychologist who had ever been through really? the program. Yes. Oh, wow. um, there was doctors and dentists and physical therapists, you know, yeah. other other helping professionals, but not another psychologist. Um, so the story is, you know, I started out getting my PhD from Indiana University in clinical psychology. My husband's career took us to Canada, to London, Ontario, and I built a private practice there as a therapist. And I'll tell you, becoming a good psychotherapist is really difficult, and it takes a very long time. It's very hard work. Mm -hmm. Um, But I loved it, and eventually I got to be good at it. And then, about 20 years in, I was sitting with a new client one day, and the client was telling me what had brought him to see me. And I heard myself thinking, I know you. I know what you're going to say. I know what I'm going to say. I know how long this is going to take. I know how it's going to turn out. Hmm. And I thought, oh, no, that is not good. (laughs) It's not good because my client deserves to have a therapist who's more engaged than that. Hmm. And frankly, I deserve to have work that's engaging me more than that. Sure. Even though I thought I was going to be a therapist my whole life, maybe it's time for me to think about doing something else. So I really valued what I had learned over those years about what makes people tick and how to help people change. But I thought maybe there's another place where I can apply this knowledge and start thinking about different kinds of problems. 
So I talked to colleagues who were doing different kinds of things, and I got very interested in how psychology could be helpful to business leaders, um, help them to be more effective in their roles and to create workplaces that would bring out the best in people. But I had the good sense to recognize that if I wanted to do that work, it might make some sense to learn something about business first. (laughs) That was what was behind the decision to go for the MBA. Um, I thought, you know, this will give me a chance to learn the language of business, to understand the world of business leaders, sure. and, and, really, and frankly, also to increase my credibility, both in my own mind and in the mind of potential clients and potential employers. Um, so the next two years were the two busiest years of my life because I was going to school <laughs> full time as well as running my practice full time. Right. Um, it was pretty wild, but it was fascinating and it was really wonderful in terms of just blowing my head open with all kinds of new ideas. Hmm. Um, And then we moved back to Chicago, which is where our roots were. And I signed on with a consulting firm and worked with them for about five or six years, learned the foundations of how to be a good consultant. And then in 2009, I started my own business. So we've just celebrated 11 years um, and I'm loving every minute of it. That's great. Well, 11 years, that's an accomplishment. So uh, that's wonderful. Well, and and you and I have something in common. We were talking about this before the podcast. We both went to what's now called Western University and and the MBA program there is renowned and has links to Harvard. So I know it's a great program. So yes, it is. And it was, it was wonderful. I went through their executive MBA program, which meant that those people I went to school with were all already in senior business leadership roles, mm-hmm. but wanting to refine and, and develop their skills. So not only was I learning from the professors who were fabulous, but I was learning from my fellow students as well. Yeah. And, and that was just a, a completely mind-blowing experience. Yeah, that's great. Well, something that uh, you said in the book that you just recently published, and the title is Curating Your Life, Ending the Struggle for Work-Life Balance, which I really enjoyed reading. and. Thanks. Yeah, in the, and in the book, you said something that really surprised me, and that is that you initially thought that self-awareness was not an important quality of a great leader, and that surprised the heck out of me because you're a <laughs> clinical psychologist. And right. I thought, right. well, you might, that you, I guess I assumed you must believe self-awareness is a, is a good thing for virtually everything in life. So it, why did you believe that, and how did you come to change your mind about it? You know, it's interesting. I think, honestly, when I made the move out of clinical psychology into consulting, it was very important to me to very sharply differentiate in my own mind what was different about this. Mm. Because I was still in the, in the business of helping people. But the nature of the contract between me and my client, the focus of the work, the kinds of techniques that you use, were in many cases very different. And it was important to me to differentiate that very clearly in my head. Um, In fact, I created a chart for myself early on. What are the similarities and differences between consulting and and clinical psychology? Um, And so when people were talking about this, I thought, you know, that sounds touchy-feely. That sounds like what I already did for 20 years. (laughs) I'm I'm not convinced that that's what I, you know, I'm here to help these business leaders make their companies profitable, uh, design their strategy, get high-performing teams working together. Right. Uh, what's I got to do with self-awareness? Well, I'll tell you, over the years, I found out. I mean, it has everything to do with self-awareness. And the smartest of my colleagues, who, who were my new teachers, taught me that, that 
And that's one of the reasons why it's been so exciting because more and more over the years, I've been able to bring things that I had learned in the early years of my career into the work that I do now. I still believe it's very different work and it's important not to, not to confuse it, mm -hmm. but that self-awareness piece, man, that's important right across the divide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you, um, you also talk about in the book how, um, here's what you wrote, these days we often talk as if everyone is a leader, which I don't find very useful. And you choose to define leader as anyone who's responsible for managing the work of others. Yes. So um, I guess I'm, I'm kind of more in the school of everyone can be a leader, but whether we choose to be, that's a different matter. So I'm curious to hear your perspectives on that, on leadership and how it shows up. Sure. I would absolutely agree with what you just, well, no. Do I believe that everybody can be a leader? No, probably not. Um, I think there are people who have emotional barriers or um, uh, motivational barriers mm -hmm. that make them unsuited for leadership roles. Mm -hmm. um, now, can those barriers be overcome? Yes. But, you know, per se, do I believe everybody can be a leader? No. Nor, do it, nor does everybody want to, as you said. I yeah. know lots of people who are terrific individual contributors and very well suited for that. And part of the problem with the way many businesses are organized is that to get promoted to a higher level, in many cases, you have to take a leadership role. Yeah, Even true. if that's not what you're suited for. When you know, you're a brilliant scientist or you're a brilliant engineer or whatever, a brilliant doctor, and then to be in a leadership role, you've got to start managing other people when it's neither your interest nor your talent to do that. Um, so, so I think that's an important distinction. But I guess, you know, I don't, for me to say, oh, everybody is a leader is kind of sloppy language because leadership in the sense of being responsible not only for your own work, but also for others, other people's work is it's a, it's, a, it's a specific kind of a role with specific kinds of challenges. It takes a different skill set than if all I'm responsible for is the work of Gail Golden. Um, so that's the distinction I'm trying to make. Mm -hmm. Well, you also said beyond creating your own life, you have to think about how to create an environment where your people are encouraged and supported to curate theirs. So yes. maybe before we get into exploring that a bit, Tell us what you, what does curation involve? And that's the main topic of your book. So, Sure, sure. Yeah. I'm happy to do that. So one of the things I learned in my career is that the two groups of clients I worked with, the, the, the people who were coming for psychotherapy early on and the business executives I work with now, very different groups of people in many ways. But the common theme that went across nearly everybody that I talked to, men and women, older and younger, stay-at-home parents and global executives, was a sense of feeling exhausted, inadequate, not meeting their own and other people's expectations, and overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. Across the board, almost yeah. everybody. Yeah, that pretty much sums it <laughs> Meanwhile, we've been talking about work-life balance forever. And I thought, you know what? It's not working. Mm -hmm. Nobody I've ever met, myself included, has a balanced life. And then we just feel worse because we think other people do and we don't. So there's something wrong with me. 
And I thought, let's let's stop, let's stop talking about that. It's a myth. It doesn't helping us. And I started casting about for okay, what's another way to think about this problem? And I started to think about the concept of curation. Um, if you think about a museum, there are all different kinds of curation, but think about a museum curator who has to put together a beautiful and meaningful exhibit. The first thing that person needs to understand is what's the exhibit about? What's the theme? What is it meant to communicate? And then based on that understanding, the curator has to make three tough choices. The first one is what doesn't go into the exhibit? It may be beautiful, it may be valuable, but it doesn't belong in this exhibit. It doesn't contribute to the exhibit. So it goes in the storeroom somewhere else. Don't throw it away maybe, but in the back room. Then the second thing is what goes into the exhibit, but it's not the main thing. It's just kind of there if people are really interested. So it goes in a side room somewhere that people can explore if they want to. And then there are the one or two or three big pieces that you see in the main hall of the exhibit that are on the poster for the exhibit that really capture what it's about. And I thought, what if we use that same mindset for how we manage our energy in our lives? That first of all, I got to get really clear about what is my life about? What matters to me? What are my passions? What are my values? What am I good at? And then take a look at my exhibit, how I'm spending my time and energy and say, well, what doesn't belong? These are things I should be saying no to. They don't fit in my exhibit. They, maybe later, maybe at another time, but not now. And then the next step is for many people the most difficult, which is these are things I have to do. They have to be part of my exhibit. But I don't have to be perfect at them. Mm -hmm. I don't have to be great at them. I just have to be good enough. Mm -hmm. That's really hard for many people to do. That. That's like the sure. things in the side room in the museum. <laughs> but if you do those two things, you say no to the things that don't belong, and you let yourself be just good enough at a bunch of other stuff, you will have the energy to do the things that are your greatness, the things that your exhibit is about. So that was the idea that I started to play with, and that's how the book came about. Hmm. Well, there's so many things I want to explore further there, but, but let's um, return to that question about the a leader having to not only curate their own lives but also to create an environment where people curate theirs yes yes Tell so i mean that. i do think that's one of the responsibilities that's different if you are a leader that your job absolutely is to curate your own life to be very clear about where you should be spending your energy um but also to to both model that for your people and and create the environment that makes it possible or even easy for them to do it. And a simple example that I have in the book is, you know, you might be a night owl and you let you do your most creative work at 1.30 in the morning. Um, but if you're firing off emails to your people at 1.30 in the morning, they get the feeling that I'm supposed to be on all the time. I'm supposed to be able to respond all the time. It's not okay for me to manage my energy in the way that works best for me. And it's just, it's, it's a bad message to be sending, especially because, you know, Outlook has a delay delivery button that you can write your email at 1.30 in the morning and then get it delivered at nine o'clock in the morning on Monday right. um, and not disturb people's sleep. Um, so that's, that's a simple example of how a leader can use 
uh, you know, make a behavioral change that makes it easier for the people who work for them to curate their lives. Yeah, I think that kind of modeling can be really valuable. It's not an overt message, and right. it's, but it does honor something about people's schedules. If you're not, um, I, I think people do get a sense of, oh man, I should be waking up at 3 a.m. to see if yeah. my boss has any messages for me. So, Absolutely. Yeah. But I think the responsibility actually goes even further than that. I think there are times when leaders, in a sense, need to protect people from themselves. Mm. And I'm not meaning to be that they should be patronizing or, you know, micromanaging. But I think they sometimes have to set limits or encourage people to, you know, get out of the office, go home, yeah. turn off your email. Um, and if, you, if you'll give me permission, I'm going to tell a quick story about yeah, that. Please. Yeah, please. Yeah. So yeah. here's my, my favorite example of that. Um, my father uh, was, lived in England during World War II. And right after the war, um, children who had been imprisoned in concentration camps in Germany were brought to England for rehabilitation. Uh, my father was, was, a, was a child in Germany and he spoke German and they were looking for people who could work with these children who spoke German or Polish or Yiddish because that's what the kids spoke. Mm -hmm. So my dad took a job in one of these rehabilitation centers. He had zero training for this. He was just wanting to do something good. Um, and you can only imagine yeah. what these children were like mm -hmm. and what they had been through and how broken and damaged and traumatized they were from having been in the concentration camps. So the work was extremely exhausting. And the director, the, 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 the staff got one day a week off. And the director of the center said to the staff, you may not set foot on the grounds of the center on your day off. <laughs> you are not allowed to be here. Yeah. Um, because he knew that they were so dedicated to the work that sure. they would be there and that they would burn themselves out. Mm. And so he, he made that rule. You don't, you don't come in. If you come in, I'm going to send you home. And to me, that's a very extreme example of what I'm talking about, that sometimes the leader has to stop people who are burning themselves out and say, don't do that. Go home. Yeah. Because I want you to be able to keep doing your best. Right. So that, to me, is part of leadership. Well, and that's an extraordinary story, and I was quite moved by it. And um, it does make some really key points about uh, being, taking more of an active role as a leader in ensuring that people um, have, I guess, permission in a way. I mean, maybe that's the wrong word because that does have a bit of a, a patriarchal sort of feel to it. But it's it really is letting people know that they're the performance is not judged by the fact that they have to get some sleep once in a while. Well, exactly. I mean, as yeah. Americans, we're terrible yeah. at that. We don't take mm -hmm. our vacation days. Right. And especially now, as we're talking during the COVID crisis and people are working from home, mm -hmm. there's all this evidence that, that the boundaries between work and, and our personal space have really almost evaporated. Yeah. And that leads to more and more of this sort of work all the time, work all the time, never take a break, yeah. which is really not the path to peak productivity. It's the path to burnout. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I've, I've spent years curating the process of working from home because that's been my choice in my self-employed world. And I think it might be for years as well, but people who are just suddenly thrown into it, it does take some time to create boundaries. and It does. And, uh, from it's working at home, yeah.
Well, as you know, the, the topic of the podcast, really, the central theme is really about impact. And I'd love to explore this idea of impactful leadership with you. Okay. When you hear that term, what does that mean for, for you? Impactful leadership. Look, I guess what? I think the job of any leader is to get the job done, whatever that may be. And so one part of impactful leadership is organizing the workspace so that people have the resources that they need, have the training that they need, you know, so that the job gets done, whether it's, you know, we hit our business targets, whether it's that we provide free lunches to 2,000 children, whatever the, 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 the goal of the team of the organization is. So, so impact is, is meeting the, the, the objectives of what your organization is about. Hmm. But I think both along with that and beyond it has to do with, it's a cliche, but creating an environment that enables your people to bring their best. Mm-hmm. And again, that's both about things like, do they have the resources that they need? Are you compensating them uh, appropriately? But it also has to do with inspiration. It has to do with personal connection. It has to do with fun, with making the workplace a a place where people enjoy themselves, uh, building a sense of community. And to me, that is all part of leadership impact. Mm. Yeah, thank you for speaking to that. I I know that some of the themes in your book I wanted to to touch on because I think they're really important. And one is uh, you talk about living your values and having conscious values. And you mm-hmm. say there's a link between productivity and living your values. Ex- can you explain the connection to us? Well, yes. I mean, talking first about managing yourself. You know, if I'm, first of all, I need to be aware of my values because sometimes we are being held back by beliefs that we learned in our, in our early childhood, which are very rigid, kind of dysfunctional values. Because when you're a little child, you think in black and white. And so you take what you learn from your parents and your teachers, and you sometimes store it deep inside your unconscious brain in ways that are rigid and punitive. So part of it is getting in touch with that stuff, the ways in which you may be holding yourself back. Mm. But the other part is, is your conscious values, the things that matter to you and are important. And I mean, I don't know that it needs to be said really, but if I'm working on something that seems important to me and seems as if it's, 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 it's congruent with my values, I'm much more likely to bring my best to it than if I'm working on something that seems dumb and irrelevant or even counter to my values. Um, Much harder then to, to bring my best energy to that. Um, so, I mean, I think there's that, that's the link, but whether I'm managing myself or whether I'm working for somebody else, I think, I mean, I've worked with a lot of people over the years who were working for a leader or an organization that was, that that didn't fit with their values. And, oh man, is that a recipe for misery? Yeah. And it's certainly not a recipe for bringing your best. It just isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It runs counter to everything we know about great performance. Exactly. Yeah. You said something uh, I thought was a little bit radical in your book. You said you encourage people to embrace mediocrity. So oh, yeah. What, what do you mean by that, that? That's a phrase I love to use to 
and get people to pay attention. <laughs> it's another way of saying what I talked about a little earlier about learning to settle for good enough. Um, because here's what I think the reality is, if we're honest with ourselves, for most of us, most of what we do in our life is just good enough. It's mediocre. It's not great. Um, but in, but we, we, then we feel bad about that and we feel inadequate and we think, oh, Susie can, uh, you know, her house is always perfectly clean. Her children are always well behaved. Uh, she never loses her temper. Um, you know, she's perfect in every way. What's the matter with me? Um, and I suppose part of this came from all the Susies that I worked with over the years who looked, had that impeccable outside. And meanwhile, they were feeling just as inadequate and overwhelmed and, you know, stressed out as everybody else. That, that was a facade that they were able to present very effectively. Mm -hmm. um, so instead of beating ourselves up about that, to, to be able to say, yeah, you know what? I choose mediocrity here. I'll give you an example. I'm a jogger. I jog about twice a week, maybe three times. I jog a slow three miles. I live on the route of the Chicago Marathon. They go right by my front window. And every year I go out, I watch those magnificent runners as they go barreling by doing their 26, whatever it is, 26.2 miles. I'm never going to run a marathon. I don't want to run a marathon. It's not one of my goals in life. I'm going to be a mediocre jogger as long as I can keep jogging. And that's fine. And that's what I mean about embracing mediocrity, accepting that in many parts of my life, I'm just going to be good enough. And instead of wasting energy feeling like, oh, I should be doing more on that, take that energy and put it into the things that really matter to you. Yeah, that, that's a really important distinction. And you, you really talk about this in the book about how to really look at what you're doing and, and make choices about what your priorities are from that perspective, which I thought was really practical and helpful. Thank you. I'll add one more quick comment about mediocrity because I think this is one of the keys to it is that when you figure out what you're going to be mediocre at, there is no requirement that you tell people. Mm -hmm. yeah. You just quietly go about it. Right. <laughs> and chances are they're not going to notice, you know, because they're busy trying to organize their own lives and do what they're trying to do. Right. Um, and, and frankly, even if they do notice, and even if somebody says, oh, well, you know that Gail Golden, have you ever opened a closet door in her house? It's a giant <laughs> mess inside there. Like I've sort of come to terms with, you know what? That's not what I want to be remembered for is how neat my closets were. Right. Yeah, it's you not, it's not what my exhibit is about. Right. Yeah. Well, um, when it comes to this question of, of mediocrity and how uh, some things are just good enough, I wonder from the work that you've done with people, do you see a different relationship with that in women versus men or in people of color versus white people? Because I think the, unfortunately people are judged differently yes. if they're the underrepresented group. That is a great question. Um, I will tell you, as I wrote the book, I thought a lot about women and men, um, in part because my work all the way through as a clinician and now as a consultant has always been both with men and women. And in fact, now I work more with men than I do with women because there are more male business executives than there are females. So, you know, it's representative of the population. Um, and, and I resist the idea that this is just a woman's problem. It is not. Um, a lot of men 
many, many men struggle with the same. They, perhaps they articulate it differently or it's about different specifics, but it's the same basic issue. Um, the, but I would say whether in Canada, you and I both remember, they used to have a term visible minority. Yes. Which meant you were a member of a minority group and people could tell it by looking at you. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think, frankly, is a very useful term because mm-hmm. it's different if you're African American and you're gonna everybody knows you are, versus if you're what I don't know, um, the Eastern European and, and you don't look any different from anybody else. Do you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. um, so visible minority. If you are a visible minority or a woman in the workplace, there are data that suggest that. Um, your, your performance will be judged more harshly, and that in particular, mistakes will not be forgiven as easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the reality that you work in if you're, if you're a member of one of the uh, you know, not dominant groups in the population. Now, does that mean that you have to be perfect at everything? It can't mean that because you're never going to be. It doesn't matter how hard you try. It does mean, I think, that you have to think extra hard about what are the particular aspects of your role that others will be scrutinizing most most carefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, because one of the things about curating your life is not, it's not just about figuring out what's, what you feel like doing. I mean, golly, we're social creatures. We live in families, we work in workplaces. We have to think about other people as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you've got a boss, you've got to think about your boss. And if you have peers, you have to think about your peers. Um, so, then it becomes a matter, I think, of getting very smart about curating where is the excellence most important, given that I will never be able to be excellent at everything. It's just not going to happen. So you're still going to have to embrace mediocrity in some areas, but you want to be very strategic about how you do that. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I love how you're very eminently practical. Yes. <laughs> so um, it's a good way of, of looking at the energy constraints and time constraints that we actually have. And you, you touch as well on different kinds of curation. And one of them related to this is recognition curation, where yes. uh, women tend to have, I, I mean, that you define that as ensuring that you both do great work and are seen to be doing great work because without recognition, it's difficult to um, navigate an organization and that women often have difficulty with both of those together. Yeah. I mean, I don't think women have any difficulty in doing great work. I mean, many of look, some of us are terrible at our jobs, but uh, you know, we're just as capable as the men are in some cases more so. Um, but yes, that reg- I know I've worked with many, many women over the years who at their core believe that if they just quietly go, in, go about doing good work, that will get recognized and they will be you know, re- uh, rewarded for that. Right. Now, I think as a leader, part of your job is to look for that. People who are quietly doing good work and not calling attention to it mm-hmm. because those may be some hidden talents in your organization. But having said that, I think if you know you have the responsibility of making that easy for your boss or your manager by letting him or her have a line of sight to what you're doing and how well you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And and again, for, for many women, that's more some men have trouble with that as well. But I think that's probably I'm 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 speculating here, 
more more often a woman's problem than a man's problem. Is well, I think how do how do I do that in a way that doesn't feel like I'm just you know blowing my own horn and being a show off? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean culturally we're trained. We as women are culture are trained really in the the idea of lifting other people up and not so much ourselves. It's really can be quite a point of criticism sometimes if if women are seen as being uh, rather than simply talking about an accomplishment, it's seen as boastful or somehow excessive where yes. men aren't necessarily subject to the same criticism. Yes. Look, I think for business leaders in general, men and women, it's very important to give credit to the team of people who are, who are enabling us to do the work mm-hmm. and to use we language when we're talking about the great achievements. And you also have to be able to talk about what you did. Because if you, if you only use we language all the time, then your boss is likely to say, well, I'm not quite sure what's the value add that Gail is bringing if everybody else is doing the work, <laughs> right, right? Right. Yeah, it's a very important thing to keep in mind. I, I, I recognize myself in that, so I, I love hearing that. Well, we can't talk about mediocrity and not talk about greatness. And you tell a really great story about what your son Ben wrote about Star Wars. And oh, yes. Stories people tell and the choices people make about their lives. Would you, would you tell us about what, what that story is and what meaning was for you? Sure. If you'll give me one second, I will find, cause I actually have his words in my book. Can oh. you t- give me one minute? And I'll see if I can pull it up really fast rather than try to retell it in my own words. One Absolutely. Here. At some point in history, someone needed to convince young men, to leave their families and go to war, which must have been a super tough sell. They wrote stories glorifying battle to sell war. The stories never went away. They got tweaked and now they sell entrepreneurship. The force, pun intended, of these stories is really hard to counteract. You have to argue that Owen and Baru's life is better than Luke's. Now, let me just stop for a second here for those people who are not Star Wars people. Um, Owen and Baru were, were um, a farming couple who took in a, a child who needed a home, um, who turned out to be Luke Skywalker, the big galactic hero of the saga. <laughs> so you have to argue, Owen and Baru's life is better than Luke's. The real life Owens and Baru's are people who have, say, been married 30 plus years, lived in the same house for 20 plus. They are winning. Being a billionaire, famous, having political power, maybe is actually stressful and not that fun. Maybe we stop celebrating that life. I mean, that blew me away that Ben wrote that, Mm -hmm. partly because Basically, that's the life his father and I led. We've been married forever. We lived in it. We lived in one house for over 20 years. We're living in our current house now for, I think, 16 years, something like that. That's the life we chose. And it felt so affirming that my son said that. And Mm -hmm. I guess what I would take from that is, I mean, if your greatness is becoming a billionaire or famous or having political power, there's nothing wrong with that. But if your greatness is taking in a foster child, um, baking really great pies for your family, um, making quilts, you know, whatever, things that are quieter that are not going to get you world-renowned, 
then that's who you are and that's what your exhibit should be about. Mm -hmm. And so we need that broader definition of what greatness means. I love that he was so insightful about it. And it's, uh, you know, the whole cultural norm around that Star Star Wars myth, which is really the hero's journey and how much that is kind of held up as a model for one's life. Um, I love that he saw that you can choose something for yourself that doesn't necessarily match that norm. He's a very wise young man. He's uh, (laughs) said. I'm very fortunate. I have three gorgeous sons, and I'm learning from all three of them all the time. (laughs) Well, that's the best thing you can say. That's great. Well, we we can't really talk about, I have an interview in these times without talking about how much leaders have had to adapt and pivot to both the pandemic and also the calls for racial equity. And how have you seen leaders being able to adapt to those challenges, those I think that's an ongoing process. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, one of the kinds of work that my team and I are doing now has to do with helping leaders begin to reassemble their teams as people are starting to come back to the office in some areas. And, and, you know, how do you decide who comes back? How do you decide who has the choice? How do you decide who should stay virtual? I mean, and then culturally, how do you recreate your company in this in this new environment very very interesting stuff i will say one of the fascinating things about leadership um, early on in the crisis was the incredible speed at which leaders and their teams made the necessary adjustments mm-hmm. i mean if you think about the digital revolution that happened in about three weeks <laughs> in late march early april right i mean Typically, that would take, what, 18 months, two years yeah. in most businesses to, to, to make that kind of thing happen. Um, and so we learn from that what we can do. Now, was it perfect? Heck no, it was clunky as all get out. But it enabled many, many, many businesses to keep functioning. Um, so that speed and agility that can do, hey, you know, let's just make this happen, I think is a, is a very positive thing that a lot of leaders and and their team members have been showing in this time. Um, But there are many, many other things that are ongoing questions. I am not convinced that everything should stay virtual from now on, that we found a better way to do business. Mm -hmm. I think there are are very important interpersonal things that happen when people are in the same space that simply do not happen in the same way through a screen. I mean, even what we are doing today, uh, we're talking over a screen, and we know that this is more tiring than if you and I were actually sitting in the same room, you know, sharing a cup of coffee and, and talking together. Mm-hmm. This takes more energy than that does. So how, if we're talking about managing our energy, that means the more Zoom interviews we have, uh, the less energy we're going to have to do other things. <laughs> so I think there's a lot that still needs to be figured out, both on the productivity end, but also on the on the what what business leaders like to call the soft side, but it's it's a crucially important side of how you make people engaged and connected and motivated, inspired and feeling valued, and all of those things that are essential for an organization to run well. Yeah, and from a societal perspective, for people to have those have work, which is a, such a large part of our lives. Absolutely. To, to have that be fulfilling and meaningful and, um, you know, what, what does that do for our society and, and uh, all right. those positive things that come out of that. 
Right. You know? I mean, the other thing from the racial equity point of view, of course, is that many of the jobs that are available to less educated and lower income people can't be done digitally. You know, they're delivery people, they're dishwashers, they are house cleaners, they are, you know, having jobs that, that they got to go out there and do them. So the only thing that this has changed for them is that they're doing it at greater risk than they mm -hmm. ever did before. Mm -hmm. um, the digital revolution is really for, you know, for, for white collar workers and people who are in, in, you know, in more in the sort of, uh, oh, I'm blogging on the name, but the economy that is based on sort of thought and, and intellectual property and so on. So mm -hmm. it, doesn't, it doesn't impact everybody in the same way, that's for sure. Well, yeah, and for people who have those kinds of jobs, that's, that's certainly true. Well, I'd, I'd like to um, ask you as our last question before we get to the rapid round about your own business. And you have an interesting business model. You have about 20 affiliates, some of them outside of North America, and right. one, one admin person, at least, that you um, include on your website. So how do right. you make that model work? You know, it's very interesting. I invented this model um, in, in, when I started my business in 2009 um, for two main reasons. One was the kind of work that I do, the kind of work that we do, is very varied. And so I need different people with different skill sets. And frankly, up until the Zoom revolution, in different geographies. You know, if somebody's living in Houston, they want a coach in Houston, not a coach in Seattle. Um, so getting that geographic representation, but also the range of skill sets means that as projects come in, I can give them exactly the team that is going to be the best for what that project is. Mm -hmm. So that was reason number one. Reason number two is I didn't want to have to lie awake nights worrying about how I was going to make payroll. <laughs> <laughs> and so this way, I, you know, I pay people on everybody who works uh, for me as an independent contractor. They, most of them have their own consulting businesses and they subcontract with Gail Golden Consulting. And so, you know, they come on board for a particular process, uh, pro program, a particular project. They do magnificent work. And then when the project is over, they go back and do their own thing again. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a flexible model that has worked very well. And the interesting thing for me over the years is I have watched now big consulting firm after big consulting firm starting to talk about things like team on demand which right. is exactly what i've been doing mm -hmm. since 2009 it's yeah. not hiring people full-time but having them as affiliates that you can use when the match is right so it's a great model that works very well for the kind of business that i do yeah, I've done both. I've had employees and what you describe as uh, contractors, and and uh, I, they both have their pluses and minuses. But from uh, you know a, a cash flow perspective, and um, also bringing in highly qualified people who you wouldn't be able to necessarily have access to as employees, it's a it's a great model. Yes, it's yeah. you're right. I mean, when you do this. You have to think very carefully about the people that you bring in, that they are going to be representative of your brand, of the quality of the work that, you know, I mean, my, sure. my, my whole business, I have no like physical um, assets. It's all people assets. So mm -hmm. I need to, I need to absolutely to have the right people. And that's, you know, that's an important part of this. And you also have to write your contract carefully so that it protects both the subcontractor and me. Mm -hmm. um, so, that, you know, those are important things to think about. Um, but that's, that's something that we've worked, worked out, and it's, it's been working beautifully. Yeah, that's great. 
Well, Gail, I always ask uh, three questions about impact as part of our rapid round to end every interview. Are you, are you game? I'm ready. All right. The first one is, what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact? Oh, you know what? I'm going to steal that one. Is a wonderful quote from Maya Angelou, who said, I, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, paraphrase it, but something like, people will forget what you said. Hmm. And they will forget what you did, but they will never forget how you made them feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that. that's the essence of impact. Mm, yeah, that's great. What's the one thing you've consistently done that's contrib contributed to your success and impact the most? Um, what, what leaps into my mind is I'm an extrovert. I love to talk. I love to be on stage. You can probably tell that from this conversation. <laughs> And what I learned from my years as a therapist was the power of listening. And I learned to be quiet mm. and to let people talk. Even a little, a little tactic I had to master was that when the other person stops talking, don't jump in right away. Mm. Let five seconds go by. And they might say something else that's really important. Um, so that the, that importance of the power of listening as part of your impact, and certainly it's a huge piece of helping other people, because if you, if you let them talk and you listen, they, they're going to find their answers. Yeah, it's huge. Well, people have a lot of wisdom in them that they don't necessarily recognize. So That's right. Leaving space for that is so valuable. Well, the last question, Gail, is what's one insider piece of advice you'd share with another business owner who's asking, how can I have impact? How can I contribute in my own way? I guess when I think about small business ownership, it seems to me that there are, there are two, there are, everything about it is great as far as I'm concerned, except two things. One is income insecurity which you just have to deal with, that there's going to be great months and bad months. That's not what we're talking about right now. But the other thing is loneliness. Hmm. And so to me, if I'm going to be an impactful leader, an impactful business person, and I'm going to be putting out energy all day long, I have to find places where I can draw energy. Hmm. And that means both in my personal life, but also looking for mentors, looking for colleagues, looking for community, where I have people I can trust, that I can talk with, that I can pick their brains about and get ideas. And over my years, you know, running my own, both my early business as a, as a therapist and now the one I have now, it's, it, that's been a, a necessary part of, of how I've been able to maintain my productivity and my engagement is assembling that community of people around me so that I get energy coming in, which I can then pour into the business. That's great. Well, Gail, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for um, kind of opening up about your thoughts on leadership and, and curating your time and energy and um, all of the things that go into creating a, a meaningful work life. And uh, thank you for being here today to talk about that. Well, this has been really a pleasure. I've enjoyed some of your questions are quite different from ones I've had before. And that's been great to sort of think about how that curation model um, applies to that. So, so thank you very much for the opportunity. You're welcome. My pleasure. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? 
Oh, probably my website is the easiest. That's gailgoldenconsulting.com. Gail is G-A-I-L, golden like the color. Um, and that has all my contact information. So if you want to get a hold of me, you can. There's a page about the book there and, and lots of the uh, blog posts that I've put up and um, other fascinating information. So that would be a, a good contact place. And the book is available on Amazon. If you Google Curating Your Life, Gail Golden, um, it'll pop right up. Great. That was my next question. So <laughs> you preempted me. That's great. Well, thank you, Gail. And thank you for the work you're doing in the world. Well, thank you. And I'm impressed with this podcast and the, and the information and wisdom that you are bringing to people as well. Before you go, don't forget to register for the Fierce Women Forum so you can grow as a leader and have more impact with your business. Go to workalchemy.com forward slash FWF, as in Fierce Women Forum, to learn more and to register. Thank you for joining me. If you want to discover more about your impact, you can schedule a business impact assessment with me. That's 75 minutes of focus on your and your company's impact and how you can increase it. Just email me at Ursula at workalchemy.com to schedule your business impact assessment. It's my gift to you. Join us for more episodes. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Rate and review it on Apple Podcasts if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of leaders like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.